Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Peter Akoboa, the Chief Operating Officer for Technology and the Global Head of Innovation at Morgan Stanley. Peter's story is characterized by resilience and a clear dedication to giving back. He describes his rise to become a leader at Morgan Stanley, both in technology and innovation, and also in diversity and inclusion. He has these incredible stories, such as how athletics growing up really shaped his career and thinking, and he has some really amazing leadership analogies. He also discusses his thoughts on the impact of technology and finance and Morgan Stanley's Institute for Inclusion, supporting diversity at Morgan Stanley and in the industry. This episode is packed with insights about tech, innovation, and DEI and finance, and is a must listen for anyone interested in the future of financial services. I will note that this was recorded a couple of weeks ago in the middle of the World Cup, actually during the Brazil versus Croatia game. Um, So uh, if there are any mild distractions, you'll have to please forgive both of us for that in the episode. I mean, I just want to contextualize a couple of our comments that we make in the episode with that as well. And now without further delay, we bring you Peter Akoboa. Peter Akoboa, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast, my friend. First and foremost, how are you and where are you calling in from? I'm excellent. I'm good. And I'm calling from New York. And um, as you know, Ross, this is a World Cup time. So everybody's enjoying the World Cup. And uh, we're doing a podcast at a time where everybody's enjoying World Cup. <laughs> well, we'll have to thank your EA, Tanya, for the timing on the scheduling. Or yes. we can try to reach out to the World Cup organizers and ask them to be a little more conscientious <laughs> of our schedules. <laughs> this podcast is important. And thanks, um, Ross, to everything you do to help um, all the students from a leadership point of view. is amazing. So thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Peter. You know, with with your support, with Mandel Crowley's support, who we've had on the podcast before, the two of you striking, you know, founding partnership with Morgan Stanley and and Scholars of Finance, you've been our champions at the firm. And we've been so grateful for your leadership and your help fueling our mission with our students. We have limited time and you're a busy man, Peter. We have so many topics to cover your story, technology, DEI, the macroeconomic environment. I want to dive right in. To kick us off, give all of our listeners and our community just an overview of your story. Tell us the story of Peter Akwaboa. As you said, Peter Akwaboa. Uh, actually, my full name is Peter Andrew Kwabna Akwaboa. Kwabna means you're born on Tuesday. So for those of you who are not aware, if you grew up some in parts of Ghana, the day that you're born it has a name for you. So probably the most famous person you probably come across is someone like Kofi Annan who was a UN general, general secretary who was, um, Kofi means you're born on Friday. Mine is born on Tuesday, so it's Kwabna. But I was actually born in the UK, left the UK at the age of roughly about seven, grew up in Ghana, and then came back to the UK to do my high school. Um, and then went to college, um, I did civil engineering. And then I pivoted from there to work for IBM, writing software. And I grew up through that landscape all the way through to financial services where I worked for a number of financial services companies and then 
from there, went to Asia, almost eight years in Asia. And here we are, about close to six, seven years in Morgan Stanley now and based in the United States now. So I've been to different places of um, all the world and now I'm based in the U.S. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate the very succinct overview. I want to go back to some of the early days, some of the stories that I've heard you tell you know, over the years of our friendship. You're an athlete. You were a triple jumper. A story that Morgan Stanley has written about, actually. Um, tell us more about your athletic upbringing, that part of your background, and how it shaped your early life and career. So I've always enjoyed sports, both watching and participating. At the height of it, I majored in triple jump. And um, I'm sure if I test people about what a triple jump is, most people will probably have to go and Google it. It's a hop, skip, and a jump. Probably the... Uh, the best in the United States, I think, was uh, Willie Banks long time ago. And then, of course, the world record is held by an English guy called Jonathan Edwards. So it's triple jump. I did triple jump all the way through, competing for England. And um, I would say that um, I'm generally quite a big fan of combining academics with some sort of extracurriculum activity. So whatever you find as what your niche is, it could be in the music industry, it could be something different, it could be in sports Whatever it is, I'm generally a big fan of that because I do believe that you learn a lot from competing or finding a niche away from um, academics itself. And for me, for me, I found that through sports, it gives me everything from leadership, from teamwork, handling adversity, handling competition, working under pressure and trying to prepare yourself and compete and be the best. So I've learned so much through that and I continue to, it has shaped who I am, it shaped my career, and it continues to shape that. Fabulous. Thanks for sharing. I was an athlete once too, but I call myself a wannabe athlete. Actually a nerd. For me, it was boxing at the height of my athletic oh, boxing. Career. Wow, that's excellent. Yeah. I got an offer to box for the New York Athletic Club my senior year of high school. My dream about to come true. And then my parents sat me down. And I used to say, crushed my dream. But now I say, saved my career and told me, hey, you're not going to become a prize fighter. What you've got in your skull is too valuable for you to get punched in the face for a living. <laughs> Correct. So Absolutely. I think similar to you, I'm grateful to have pursued the corporate career. Your corporate career has been incredible. You know, you give a very, very succinct and high level overview of what's been an illustrious career journey so far, full of accomplishments, you know, from you mentioned IBM, your time at the Royal Bank of Scotland, now at Morgan Stanley. What have been a few of the major inflection points or changes in your career? And tell us about those, what caused those, how you made your decisions in those moments. Kind of walk us through some of those watershed moments in your career and how you thought through them. I think I'll pick two moments um, in my career. The first one is trying to pivot from, call it a, an IT company, um, IBM, into the financial industry, because I always had a, the drive to join the financial industry. So that's probably been the pivot. And with that, I spent a time, it's all around having a goal and having a, a passion. And in that time, my passion was getting into the financial industry. So I managed to spend a lot of time with some of the, the principal consultants who were working on IBM at the time. And I managed to convince them that um, I was good enough to be able to join some of their projects in the financial industry. So in this case, I, there was one gentleman called Alan Greenwood who I spent a lot of time with, and um, he gave me an opportunity to work on his project at JP Morgan. And that was kind of the pivot of my, of my career. So it's coming back to trying to build relationships, but also making sure that those relationships are authentic by ensuring that you have something to give. Because it's not just about building a relationship. It has to be based on the fact that 
you have excellence in what your your and execution capabilities to be able to demonstrate that. And so he gave me that opportunity, and that was the first pivot in my life. I think the second one was really around the global financial crisis, and it almost, in some ways, brings your career backwards. But in the other ways, it fast tracks your career because everything you've learned in the industry, everything goes in a normal way until you hit some like a financial crisis where you realize that all the skills that you've learned, you had to you have to put into practice, and that was kind of a major shock. So I would say that my career probably leapfrog about five to six times just because at the time when the GFC happened, I just moved into Singapore and um, I was in a senior position and had to manage a lot of the, um, the, the desk and the areas where I had the potential risk um, in terms of um, a lot of the um, clients defaulting. And so that was a test of one's character. You know, how do you hold a team together? How do you ensure that people who are losing their jobs, people who cannot afford things, people who have over-leveraged themselves, and you have to manage them, um, try and work with them at the same time, trying to run a business going forward. So I think those things are two defining characters in my life. You know, Peter, you mentioned character, you know, the financial crisis being a true test of character. Uh, I remember back to the first phone call you and I had, and I think a few of the key words that bonded us immediately were character, ethics, and integrity. And you and I have had a lot of conversations related to scholars of finance about values and principles and purpose in finance. What are some of the leadership principles, the values, or the paradigms that have led to the incredible success you've had so far in your career? I've always had a view around when it comes to leadership, three parts to this. And I always call it, you would build the house you want to live in. And when you think about building a house, it has three parts to it. The first is the foundation. The second is your structure, and then the third is your roof. So when we talk about the foundation, I do believe that every leader, by the way, we're all leaders in our own right. So I do believe that the foundation is all about how you do your job and the excellence and the mastery that comes into doing your job. And so as a leader, I always wanted to know as I'm excellent in getting my day job done. So when the going gets tough, and we have to be very technical about the job, I'm able to have the same conversations. That is key. Without a foundation, everything else becomes fluff. The second area is really what I call a structure, which is the approach you take to do your job. If it starts becoming the intangible, that's what people see. So who are you and how, what approach, you know, do you prepare before meetings? Are you the sort of person when you're leading, you are able to empathize with people? Are you the type of leader who is able to tell a story, give a strategy, give communication, able to handle conflict management and and so forth? So what kind of leader are you? Um, Are you the type of leader people want to follow because um, you inspire them, you sponsor them and so forth? So there's all around what is your approach and who are you in getting that done? And I always pick my moments around that. I generally believe um, that if you talk to people, I'm more around all around people because I, I do think that anything I do is a people business and if I can motivate people and I can give them a platform and if you build the best team you know you can get things done the third area is the roof and the roof is really your broader influence and your thought leadership in society overall and so for the roof I think about it as what beyond your day job what else do you offer as a leader that people see in you 
that one day when you write your your story, everybody believes in it and can follow it and want to be part of it. So that is one part. The other part is you give back to society. Um, other parts includes how much relationships and authenticity do you build from a relationship point of view that helps you going forward. So in my view, all I think about is the three parts to it. And I try to make those three parts all connected in such a way it forms who you are as a leader. Interesting. In this analogy, if one has a really strong foundation of values and principles, you know, their walls, their room, the structure, their process, how they operate is all sound. If they're not actively engaging in thought leadership, you know, is rain getting in? Is there not a roof? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so you have to be engaging in all aspects of that. So the question then becomes, where are the parts where it can lead to leakage? Right. Because <laughs> so, at the end of the day, you don't want any leakage because you want the roof to be operating, no leakage in there. And then I think you see some of those where you, you know, the flip side of some of this is you see, you know, your leader, you're losing people from your team. You wonder why. When you get into stress scenarios as a leader, we've had to see the same thing in, in the pandemic. You can see what's differentiates real leaders from, the, um, um, from others, which is about, you know, are you the sort of person who have instilled values and culture in a team? For a long period of time because it's always too late by the time you get there if you haven't instilled the right approach and culture in any organization or any team it's too late when you're here when you see major shocks that's when you start seeing the leakage on a normal day to day you may not see any leakage just like when you have a house the time you see leakage when there's a significant snowstorm or significant rain then all of a sudden you see that there's some leakage and so a lot of this is about how you prepare well in advance the team that you build the values that you instill, the culture that you put in place, the way you provide strategy, how you stress test your environment. And that's where leadership comes in. And so uh, for me, it's a continuum and it's not one versus the other. It's interesting. A lot of what you're describing relates a lot to your role at Morgan Stanley. At a high level, share with our audience, what do you do at Morgan Stanley? Explain your role and your purview. Yeah, so I like to have two jobs. One is around um, the C uh, Chief Operating Officer for Technology. And that Mongolstani has three main businesses, institutional business, which is largely the traditional industry called a fixed income business. So sales and trading, which is all around investment banking. And the second business is really wealth management business, largely predominantly in the United States, advising high net worth individuals and, and so forth. And then the third business is the asset management business. So for us, all we do is enable the business to be able to, success, to be successful. Last year, we made if you look at our 2021 numbers, it was a 60 billion company. And then a lot of what we do in technology is enabling that business to be successful. And I'm the chief operating officer of that. The second area, which has been a recent announcement as back in um, April, is I am now the head of innovation for Morgan Stanley. And with that, it's really about how do we continue to demonstrate that when we see the advancement of some of the innovation in industry how do we continue to ensure that we take first of all we take advantage of that to complement our business model but secondly make sure that we're not being disrupted and if we are how do we respond relative to that as well so my job is to work with leaders in, in Morgan Stanley as well as external companies to try and bring some of those two things to bear either finding solutions to complement our business model or making sure that uh, we're not we don't continue to be to be disrupted in the industry. Later, congrats, which I've said before, on the new role as the head of innovation for Morgan Stanley. Incredibly exciting role. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how that works. 
when you're one of the largest financial institutions, largest companies in the world, you hear people say that as a company gets too large, there's this inverse correlation between the speed of innovation and their ability to innovate and the size of the business. Google and some tech and fintech companies seem to have bucked this conventional wisdom and continue to innovate even at great scale. How do you at Morgan Stanley approach innovation, think about innovation to the extent that you're able, you know, without uh, revealing your trade secrets, how do you innovate at Morgan Stanley? So uh, that's a great question, first of all. I always think that um, innovation always starts with clarity and purpose and what you're trying to achieve. In Morgan Stanley, you will see that um, we have strong leadership that has clarity and purpose in terms of the business strategy and where we're headed. Because without that, it becomes very difficult to innovate. And so that is the first thing. Once we have that, it then becomes more around the talent that we have in place because innovation really starts with the talent and we have some of the best in the industry. And by doing that, we also then comes back to the type of culture you want to build to innovate. So if you look at the culture we build, you can see our five values that we talked about, you know, five values about, you know, servicing uh, seven clients well, you know, you see the values around doing the right thing, values around um, committing to diversity and inclusion, and then our values around uh, leading with exceptional ideas, right? So these are all kind of values that we, uh, we have in place. And when you actually go through that, it helps us to instill the right culture in any organization. And then after that, it becomes more around how we continue to, to innovate relative to the uh, business strategy. Now, you see some of the business that we have. We have some of the best businesses on the, on the street, including our um, equities business. Wealth management business continues to be some of the best on the, in the industry. And um, part of that is the capabilities we build over time. I appreciate you sharing the importance of uh, clarity and purpose on the front end of innovation. Um, I think a lot of companies end up getting stuck in just testing and iterating, um, not really knowing what their KPIs are, what the North Star is, um, where they're trying to head or the goals they're trying to achieve. And you can sort of just get lost in this sort of experimentation approach without clarity. I'm curious, you have to innovate on such a large scale on a global scale. Last spring, there was a lot of press about Morgan St Stanley's expansion into India and how that country plays an important role in growing your firm's global technological strength. Can you elaborate on Morgan Stanley's global growth strategy, especially as it relates to technology? Yeah, so Morgan Stanley is a global organization. We service clients globally, and by that nature, we ensure that our technology operating model is set up to be able to support the business globally. As it relates to India, Part of what we see is really how do we demonstrate a global operating model that allows us to take advantage of some of the talent, best talent sitting in different locations. So we double down like most other competitors in India because we see strong technology skills there that allows us to develop, support some of the businesses um, um, globally. And uh, we've been there for and sometimes we continue to grow in that space and we do some of the interesting, innovative software development and support from there as well. It's a beautiful place. I was actually in India for Miranda, our chief program officer's wedding earlier this year. Got to see New Delhi firsthand and, and so enjoyed my time there yeah. and was really fascinated yeah. to hear about the digitization of the country, right? 500 million yeah. Indians in the last five years 
getting mobile phones, a bank account, a social security number and free data. It's absolutely wild what's happening in the country. Yeah, I spent nine months in uh, Bangalore, living in Bangalore. So that was very interesting back in the days. And uh, when I was in Asia, I spent a lot of time in um, parts of um, in India. So uh, my time in in India has been many years now, and um, I continue to be very bullish in and the quality of the uh, the talent we we get from there. They have some of the some of the best universities in um, in the world, and um, I'm able to produce some of the best. And so we continue to double down in that part of the world. Amazing. I want to shift a little bit. You mentioned doubling down on that part of the world, being very bullish there. Fintech and technology and innovation, you know, seem to be eating the world, as our as friends at Andreessen Horowitz like to say. I believe it was Angela Strange from Andreessen Horowitz who wrote a piece in 2019 entitled Every Company Will Be a Fintech Company, in which she argued that software not only lets us bypass hard structural problems, it lets us build entirely new kinds of companies and services. All of this is to say fintech is eating the world. What do you think of this assessment? Is that true? Fintech is eating the world. That's a very interesting um, comment. No, I, I take three parts to this. Part number one is really around, is fintech is challenging business models, but it's not necessarily changing the business model. And let me try and qualify that. When there are aspects of fintech that one can always learn from and it challenges us. And when you think about fintech companies, the biggest thing is that they don't have a baggage of legacy infrastructure uh, they don't tend to have a, a lot of baggage around re- regulations and so forth. So they can innovate quite quickly and they can also tap into some of the areas like the unbanked um, clients and, 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 and so forth. Having said that, all it does is also challenges us to be innovative and to be quite quick in what we do, right? And so there is one part where we're learning from the fintech industry for us to continue to be very thoughtful about how we challenge our business model, the speed to execute, and some of the solutions we're putting in place. I'll give you an example. In some cases, we partner a lot with fintech companies and some of the fintech solutions to be able to complement our business model. And by doing that, we have to think about the speed of onboarding of these um, fintech companies. How do we support them in even some of the, the legal and requirements and so on, because some of the some of the contracts tends to be written more for the big big players as opposed to fintech organizations. So I do see one part where it challenges our our way of evolving how we operate. And then I see a part around how we partner with them to be able to get things done. Then there's only the only, there's the other flip side of that, which is where I think she is going, which says actually you know what is going to potentially challenge the way um, the traditional banks um, handle things. And in so doing the traditional banks may not exist, everything will become fintech. I take a, a view that I don't think is one versus the other. My view is that actually the two of them will coexist and there's an opportunity to continue to partner and move things forward. And so that's kind of the view I take in general, but one cannot get complacent around the fact that um, the speed of innovation in that space is putting a lot of pressure on us to continue to also be quick in how we innovate. The one interesting part, which we haven't talked through the whole dynamics around that is, at what point does regulations normalize? Because some of these new fintech players who are coming up who are potentially tapping into an ecosystem of clients that sometimes some of these clients are not clients that will 
will benefit from the traditional financial institutions, but then it's easy for them to go to the fintech. At some point, this regulation is going to catch up. We don't know, TBD. But if it does, it starts neutralizing where we stand when it comes to the overall fintech space. I appreciate the three-part view here. And I can't wait to look back a year or two on this and see the tail of the tape on the predictions. I remember a few years ago, everyone was saying, well, Amazon is going to take over the world. Google is going to take over the world. Apple is going to take over the world because they have all the client data and they can easily turn into a bank. Those are all potentially true, but time will tell. My view is there's not one versus the other. I think there's a complementary. Mm-hmm. It's complementary to each other. Yeah. Absolutely. The pie continues to grow and Correct. the pie is still exactly so that. enormous. You know, we still have to get, you know, something like half of humanity, like eating their fair share of the pie and, you know, creating enough pie for them. That said, I want to shift a little bit into a different topic that I know you're really passionate about, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. In addition to your role as COO for tech, as head of innovation, you're a real champion for diversity and inclusion within Morgan Stanley and elsewhere. Finance has consistently been labeled as one of the least diverse industries in the United States and the world. In your opinion, what are some of the unique challenges the finance industry faces in becoming more diverse and inclusive that have caused this? Uh, and what are the solutions? First of all, the, the challenges, I don't think it's financial industry versus the, the others. There are general challenges around the basis around when you talk about diversity, the fact that structures design more broadly to be able to support the majority, right? And these are some of the structures which have been um, systemic structures which existed for a number of a number of years so forget about financial industry for now so only reason that when they go to golf clubs right women are allowed some of the certain golf clubs right so you know we got to have to think that these are not we are all human beings we operate in societies and some of these things have been things which have existed for some time and it's changing over time so some of those actually then permeates towards um, organizations as well. So some of the challenges are, I would say, is more systemic and things that has to change, right? Now, when it comes to the financial industry, I can't comment broadly around the financial industry, but I can tell you that with what we do in Morgan Stanley, there is a focus around sustaining diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda. If you go on our website, you can see that um, at the advent of George Floyd, a lot of companies made statements. We didn't necessarily make statements. We took action. And some of the actions that we took include setting up an institute for inclusion. And I kind of really believe that it is fun- fundamental when you're talking about something which is sustainable, you have to have something in place to govern it and have a tone from the top. So the Institute for Inclusion is something we've set up, which is uh, has a non-execs or external external thought leaders in the industry and working with uh, our senior leaders, including our CEO, James Gorman. And then a lot of that is really trying to learn from them, set a tone, and then internally trying to ensure that we have focus around culture, focus around representation, focus around how we retain our people and so forth. So I see a change in those. um, And I see a change that we are focusing on being very transparent. So now you see that we publish um, a report every year and we're quite transparent around where we stand we're quite transparent around our goals where we're heading and then we're also transparent around how we continue to support the equity environment when it comes to whether suppliers or when it comes to multi or ethnic 
minority sort of, um, companies. And as you see, we have this multicultural lab as well. So I do see that things are changing and I'd rather focus on the setup that we put in place to continue to maintain sustainability mm-hmm. going forward. You know, sincere congratulations on all the results and all the success. You know, we hope it's hours of finance. We can help contribute to that continued success. There's still work to be done. This thing is not one versus the other. It takes a real village to be able to provide what I'll call an inclusive environment um, that that represents the society that we live in. And I think we all have to lean in, into that. I wait for the day that we don't even have to have this conversation because it's just it's just natural and it's, it, it it's is solved. Do, but it's, there's still some work to be done. Yeah. A lot of work to be done. You know, there's been a lot of discussion and there's a lot of work to do on creating not only inclusion, but macroeconomic stability, right? The macroeconomic sure. climate recessions disproportionately affect, you know, the poorest, the lowest socioeconomic strata time and time again. We saw this in the recession in 2000, you know, the great financial crisis. We saw this yeah. with COVID. We're even starting to see it right now and, and expecting it a lot more in 2023. I'd love yeah. to shift into a discussion about the economy. The current macroeconomic environment is marked the greatest period of uncertainty many young finance leaders have ever faced, right? Who weren't um, into their careers when the great financial crisis hit with 8% inflation, approximately interest rates continuing to rise, broad rhetoric that we're in or entering a recession. How has your work changed over the last six months? And how do you expect it to change in the year ahead? Great question. Look, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that um, we live in an unprecedented environment right now. When you think about um, some of the rhetoric going on in Ukraine, when you look at some of the things coming up from China and so forth, I like to spare thought for particularly our people and, and our employees in, in Ukraine and so forth, which have been going through some of these, um, I guess, tough conditions and, 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 and so forth. And for us, um, we always have to recognize that um, we have a global business and we have to act accordingly based on where some of the challenges are. So the first thing we've had to do is act accordingly. For example, with a situation going on in Russia and so forth, act accordingly relative to what our regulators want us to do and what we think is prudent for, for, for business and so forth. So that's kept us busy. Things that we also have to work through, and it comes back to, you know, how do you build a business and how do you make sure the business is robust and resilient relative to what is going on in the economy? So we're constantly reviewing that um, and understanding the business model and how that can potentially be impacted. I think for in regards to technology, what we focus on is the nimbleness and the flexibility to be able to act accordingly, right? So the things that you see that we have to act accordingly is we may have to change business model quite quickly. That means we have to react. We have to put our defenses up uh, when it comes to cyber and act accordingly by, you know, we've invested quite a lot in, in um, some of the defenses that we've had to put in place, whether it means hunting for potential things which are coming through that we have to act. When it comes to fraud and, and so forth, we have to act. So all this is about putting the right framework and the culture and ethics in place so that we're able to react for to the shocks. And what you're seeing is this, tomorrow it could be something different. The one thing I would say is that we've been very good around building and instilling the right level of culture that allows us to act and execute and get to decision-making quite quickly to be able to hopefully adjust. But we live in an unprecedented world and we have to spare some thoughts, spare some thought for our people and so forth. 
It's interesting, Peter, like digging into that a little bit more. And, and what I'm thinking is, what I'm curious as, and I think will be useful for our listeners and whether students, early career finance professionals or very senior executives mm-hmm. to hear, you had mentioned that the great financial crisis was, you know, earlier in our conversation, a pretty important moment in your career, right? A pretty, your career leapfrogged five or six times during that, during that period. It was a test of character. You know, we hear a lot of people liken this and to the great financial crisis just because of the the recessionary conditions. Obviously, there's a lot of differences. It's not an analogous situation in a lot of ways. You saw the great financial crisis up close in 2007, 8, and 9 and learned a lot of lessons. What did you learn from that last major recession that you think can apply to the, con- the current conditions? And what advice do you have for all of us to, to try to navigate based on those learnings? So... I would say three things I learned from the last recession. Number one is you have to be think about your own personal situation and be ready that things can take a turn quite quickly. So whether you're thinking about saving, managing your financials and so forth is key. And interestingly, if I fast forward to the pandemic, my own personal situation is that my own personal belief is that the way you handle yourself is these days you have to save more than you've ever done in the, in the past at least a year in my view a year 18 months now compared to previous because some of these things are long and sustained so this whole thing around your own personal situation the second thing that i i picked up is as around being resilient in a recession like that and being resilient but also recognizing that there's a community aspect that can support and one and that it becomes quite key. Resilient in the mind, resilient in, in being able to come to the office. And the third thing is that in some cases, not everybody has the answers. So trust your decisions. You're going to make some decisions that may be right or wrong. But the most dangerous thing when it hits situations like this and you're dealing with whatever the outcomes are is not making any decisions. And so make a decision, don't sit on the fence, trust your decisions. And then if it doesn't work, adjust quickly. If it works, it's great. Because nobody else, not a lot of people have had experiences like this. And so, you know, trying to even ask for help, sometimes everyone is saying that we're all in this together. And so that's, those are the three things that I was saying. I appreciate you sharing. I found myself over the last couple of months being one of these, quote, young leaders as the Milken Institute likes to call us, you know, which I know is one of your alma maters that we share. Uh, what I've been thinking about is the Martin Luther King quote that, you know, where he famously said, the true test of a person's character is not in times of comfort and convenience. It is in times of challenge and controversy. Correct. And, you know, you mentioned it's a test. It was a test of character during the great financial crisis. I, fa- I guess asking for advice personally, because I, I imagine some other folks who weren't really working professionals yet during the great financial crisis might be wondering the same thing. There's sort of this tension that I'm experiencing personally, where on one hand, there's this sense of urgency, this imperative urgency to work more harder, faster, smarter with the highest levels of excellence we ever had to make sure that we get through the recession safely and successfully. You know, gratefully at SOF, we're in a really durable position financially. We've got incredibly generous, committed donors like Morgan Stanley and others. So right now it looks like we're in a really good position, but I'm balancing this tension between, gosh, the solution here is just to work hard, move fast, do the best work of your entire life. But on the other hand, 
I find myself yearning for some time to step back and reflect, to retrospect, to examine my values and principles, to think critically and deeply about how I apply my values and principles. Um, And those are at odds, right? There's only 24 hours in a day. I'm still trying to find that 25th hour like so many of us are, but it just doesn't exist. How do you think about sort of managing that balance between you have to execute, but you also have to think deeply, critically, reflect, and learn in times like this? Yeah, I think, look, I think we all, some of us are all type A. So when I go and get stuff, we want to just continue to to double down on on work and uh, and just think that that will take us through the uh, the other side of the tunnel. And sometimes it doesn't work. And so for me, you know, you're doing the right thing by asking the questions, talking to other people, getting views, and seeing how you can manage um, and that balance. I do think that um, is the right thing to do by asking those questions. And I, you will be better at telling and knowing what works for you. What I think about is that um, that we're in a situation where anything the pandemic has told us and has taught us something that we should not waste the crisis and we can learn from it. What it's taught us is that actually businesses can run and we are able to take time out and able to recalibrate and still things can run. So hopefully, Ross, you've learned from the pandemic that it is okay to sometimes slow down. It is okay to to balance things and things will still survive and things will still run. And, you know, if this was before the pandemic, I would say a tough question. I wouldn't know how to answer this, but we've learned a lot in the last two years that we should not be wasting. If anything, I appreciate you re- referring back to the pandemic because I almost yeah. like, it's almost like my brain is like blocked it out, right? Like I PTSI yes. with the pandemic. Yeah. You know, I quit my job at SoFi at a fintech company. Yeah. That's a super innovative place to come and run a nonprofit like six months before the world fell apart. We definitely worked hard <laughs> through the pandemic and we we came out stronger and better in part thanks to your, your mentorship and guidance. Peter, we've got just a few minutes left. I want to move into our rapid fire round. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions. Just give me whatever's the quick answer, whatever's in the top of your mind. You ready? Yes. All right. First, for students listening who might be interested in pursuing a financial career related to technology, who want to go into fintech, who want to go into SWE, what advice would you give them? What should they focus on and prioritize in college? I would advise them that the financial industry continues to be very innovative. Our clients are moving at a pace that allows us to continue to be innovative. And for students who are thinking about the financial industry, you couldn't be anywhere other than thinking about it. Everything that you can think about, we are solving here. Um, when you think about defending the nation, we are there, whether it's cyber. When you think about the basis of how we have to put things on the cloud, we're there. When you think about finding customers, client solutions, that is some of the cutting edge. We're there. So whichever way you look at it, I would advise all the students to really think about what it takes to join this industry because it's moving at the pace that we have to keep up and we need some of the best to be able to join. All right. So the advice is join Morgan Stanley. It's exciting. It's interesting. This is where you want to be. (laughs) Yes. We're some of the, the best businesses in the financial industry and we have some of the best talent and we continue to hire some of the best. 
This segues into my next rapid fire question. You and Mandel yeah. Crawley, Morgan Stanley, CHRO, and a member of the operating committee have yeah. jointly championed scholars of finance internally. And we were thrilled to announce in the spring of this year that Morgan Stanley became one of our founding partners at scholars of finance. Can you share a bit with our community why you and Mandel and the firm got behind scholars of finance and initiated the partnership? Yep. I think very simple. Anything that is about supporting the next generation to be leaders, we always look for because we believe that we are looking for the next leaders to join Morgan Stanley and Scholars of Finance is doing by instilling the right ethics, culture and leadership mindset uh, coupled with um, academic excellence is something that we think we want to support. I think the second one is, Ross, you've been a fantastic advocate. For the first time we spoke, I knew that uh, a passion of yours, you could potentially do anything, but you chose to do this. And we believe that uh, for looking at that, it is something that we want to support. And last, it takes a village. You know, we're not just there to just to make money. We're there to service the community and service the, the communities about the people that we service. And so it takes a village and we are we want to double down. And that's why we wanted to support um, Scholars of Finance. And I think it was the right decision we made. Thanks, Peter. We're, we're incredibly kind for your and the firm's generosity. Thank you for the kind words. I feel humbled and honored. You know, it, it takes yeah. a village. It's a big team effort. Everything that we've right. achieved as scholars of finance, you know, we have, gosh, we're at 50 universities with 1,600 student members and candidates. We've had more than 600 financial professionals speak, mentor, advise, donate, even scholars of finance. Like what we've done is taken a village ourselves. So I can't, I can't claim much credit and really appreciate you and Mandel and the firm's support and guidance along the way. Final rapid fire question. As we kick off 2023, any final words of wisdom or advice you want to share with our listeners to have the best year they've had yet? The only thing I would share is, it doesn't matter what you do, take care of yourself. That's the number one. Take care of yourself. We've had tough years and we, the only way you continue to have mileage and marathon is you take care of yourself. So find the one thing that allows you to take care of yourself. So, and if you're like Peter Aquaboa, you know, get on the Peloton, get on it every yeah. day. Please join the heart healthy. <laughs> join him. Yeah. Um, I love those Instagram posts. Peter, what a joy to speak to you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Super excited for the year ahead and would love to have you on again soon. Uh, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.